The playoffs roll on, and so does the Salt City Hoops podcast. This is Dan Clayton, the associate editor of Salt City Hoops, and I'm joined almost straight from the dentist's chair. He's finally joined the world of the of the speaking humans with operational mouths again. Um, no, not Isaiah Thomas, um, but it's my brother Ken, Ken Clayton, joining us from Phoenix. Um, did you catch the uh, Isaiah Thomas losing his tooth yesterday, by the way? I didn't see it live, but I've seen plenty of video of it. And after okay. now, now my experience today, he and I, he, I have sympathy for him. He does not have any sympathy for me because he doesn't know who in the world I am. So we're going to expect, I think, 33 points out of you on this podcast now. Um, no, we will not expect any scoring. Um, what we will expect, though, is plenty of good analysis because now we get to talk about not just an exciting finish to a first round series by the jazz. We get to talk also about a second round series. So we'll get to that. The jazz getting ready to face off with the golden state warriors in, by the time this reaches our, uh, our faithful listeners ear holes less than 24 hours. So we have that to look forward to and to talk about, um, I guess before we get there, Ken, let's just pause for a second and reflect on the Jazz's seven-game win over the Clippers. I don't know, is there anything for you that just sort of, um, in terms of a takeaway, was there a defining moment? What impressed you the most about coming away from Staples with three wins, actually, in the course of the series, including that that big one on Sunday night to close it out? Uh, you know... I thought you were going to ask what impressed me most out of the last game, but when you ask it on the bigger scale, I just think that's that's getting into, I don't know, I hesitate to use the word special because this is still a very young team that's just getting their first you know, foot in the water playoffs-wise, but that's an impressive task to come away with three wins on the road against a team that has kind of owned you for a while, 18 out of the last 20 regular season contests. Now, the reason they needed three wins on the road is they dropped two at home, so that's the bad side of the coin. But they had there were, there were some reasons behind that, um, although really only one, if you ask me, the one that they lost uh, game three without Rudy Gobert. Um, that was the only one that really had a reason. Game four felt like they could have done it, and game – well, no, they game four sorry and then the game six felt like they should have done it they weren't they didn't really have a hand tied behind their back as far as they had everybody playing and healthy but yeah it was it was impressive anytime a team like that can come in and win three on an opposing team's floor that's 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 big to me yeah yeah well i mean it, it proves what the jazz had said all year long which is that certain parts of their identity they felt like traveled well um and, and that's what I saw is just a jazz team that was able to compete because they weren't wrapped up, you know, when they were in staples for those three games, they weren't wrapped up in, you know, am I scoring? Am I doing this? It was really, you know, the focus was on the right things and was on the right habits. And, and I think that was impressive. And especially if you, um, not to milk too much drama out of this moment, but like rewind a bit to April 15th or 16th, whatever day it was that the, it was the 15th, right? The Jazz started on the 15th. They got the Saturday game to start. Yes, that's okay. correct. Yes. So 10 seconds in to their first playoff game in, you know, five years and, and Rudy falls down and, you know, 
seven seconds later gets subbed out. So all of 17 seconds into the game and you're already watching a guy literally crawl down the court. And, yeah. um, and just to see them respond, not just in that game, but just to see them kind of weather that and hang with it over the course of the series was really impressive. Yeah, absolutely. And then, uh, you know, the smaller, uh, the smaller crisis of losing Hayward for the one game or most of one game, yeah. uh, you know, they, they had to weather some storms. It's, uh, and you know, it's a little bit cliche cause it keeps happening, but this whole idea of, you know, next man up, uh, it certainly played a part, uh, you know, even again in the game seven with, uh, because of foul trouble, not because of, of injury. Yeah. I, I, I agree with that. I do think next man up in the context of this series was mostly still the men that you would expect to be right. You know what I mean? Like Rudy goes down and you get a big night out of the guy who a year ago we talked about like a borderline all-star, you know, um, he, a 16 and eight guy, a, a, a great versatile defender. Um, you know, Gordon Hayward gets down and, uh, you know, goes down with a bad sandwich and the next man up is a guy who, a little over a year ago was leading a team in Brooklyn. So, um, right. I mean, I, I agree with you. It was still impressive to see them just sort of reallocate possessions, change their mentality and roll with it. But it wasn't like all of a sudden Shelvin Mack was a competent, <laughs> you know what I mean? It wasn't, sorry, that was, <laughs> that was a little strong. It wasn't like all of a sudden you were getting 20 from Alec Burks. Um, may he rest in peace. So, you know, um, I guess I guess that was the one thing, but but I don't know. I mean, there were probably some surprising things. What surprise was there? Anything in the series that just um, beyond what we've said about um, the moments and and the Jazz not shying from these moments? Was there anything that just surprised you from a, a personal stamp? You know, from an individual performance standpoint, I guess I should say. Not surprised me overall, but you know, you mentioned the very first thing you mentioned when you started there was, you know, that a year ago we were talking about Derek Favors as if he was this, this, and this. That's absolutely true. So him him having a good game isn't a, shouldn't have been a surprise. But remember, right in this series, he also had some bad games. So when he came in with one or two minutes in for for when Rudy got his second foul, there was some doubt what we were going to get out of Derek Favors in Game Seven. Um, when Rodney Hood checks in for whomever or for Hayward when he gets the bad sandwich. Is that what the uh, box score actually said? Hayward out, bad sandwich in parentheses? Well, he played, um, he played nine minutes, so sadly no, we I know. Oh, that's to right. see what the box score would say. <laughs> that's right. I, um, keep on, I keep forgetting. Yeah, okay. I, I'm so, happy to lobby the league office to retroactively change the box score to DNP bad sandwich, though. Yeah. Um, I'm okay with that. Yeah. So, you know, when Rodney Hood comes in, for whatever reason, you don't. You also don't know which Rodney Hood you're going to get. I mean, in general, throughout the year, was he po and positive? Sure, but you know, in a series, clearly he had moments and, and stretches where he struggled. Um, game six, you know, some guys didn't play well, and that's why it didn't get closed out in game six. Um, we ended up getting contributions from more guys in game seven. And that's why it ended up being, what was the maximum? I think a 21 point lead at one point of the game. And then it was just uh, not coasting because it never felt a hundred percent safe. But at some point you had to feel like, boy, it would be have to, it would take a colossal collapse or Herculean effort from the clips <laughs> to make this, to make this turn around. Actually, I'm going to, I'm going to surprise you. I'm going to ambush you with another question that you're not prepared for because somebody, yes. somebody asked me just that today. Someone said, when did you 
not relax because I don't think you relax until the until there are zeros on the clock. But someone said, at what point did you figure, okay, they're pretty safe now? What? Let's hear your answer. Well, I think you know my answer because oh that's true i yeah, I, I had to leave to go to a home show yes. uh, that, that my my the company i own was running and i avoided facebook i avoided twitter i avoided everything and i picked up my phone to to check an email or something and i forgot that this stupid nba app was going to give me a notification either way at the end because it was a game 7 and i picked up my phone to see if i had any texts or emails and i saw Jazz defeat Clippers 104.91, and I sunk a little bit. Although it was a good, at least it was good news. Um, so yeah, when I actually watched the second half, I had no, I had there was no drama for me. Yeah, yeah, I forgot about that. So yeah, sorry to rub that in. I guess is the ah. first thing I would say. Um, because I because I was thinking about that. You know, Aaron Hefner, one of our Salt City Hoops contributors, he was messaging me throughout the game, and and it. And you would you might think that that means that like we were sitting there analyzing and breaking. No, basically every few minutes he would message me and say, "How do you feel now? Okay, how do you feel now?" And, Are we um, there yet? Are yeah, we there yet? That was totally what yet? it felt like. So um, I don't I don't know precisely the moment where I felt like, okay, they've got it. Um, but you know, a lot of a lot of NBA teams use kind of fifteen points, five minutes as as the barometer for like in a regular season game, that's when you would rest. That's when you would take your guys out and say, okay, we're probably conceding for tonight. That didn't happen um, in game seven. Cause it was a game seven, but with five twenty four left um, Crawford hit two free throws to make it a 14 point game. So 14 mm-hmm. with five minutes left. Now the jazz came up empty on their next possession and Crawford hit it to 12. They came up empty on their next possession and Crawford hit a free throw to make it 11. So, I mean, it's not like that was as close as the Clippers got, but there was a sense about midway through that, you know, wow, the Jazz are still really in control of this and, and it felt good. Um, sorry, go funny, ahead. funny story is that I was actually, you know, watching it already knowing the outcome. And there was one point sometime in the fourth quarter, it must've been right around that, that, for half a second, I think my brain forgot that I already knew the outcome, and I actually started to get a little nervous and feel <laughs> that. And and then I realized, oh, hey, stupid, you already know how this thing ends. So I, ever, I got over it quickly. Does that ever happen to you when you're watching, like, the classic games? I don't know. I haven't watched a classic game for so long. Like, what, what, what? The the thing that jumps out to me some a couple times in a classic one one specific classic game is the is the Stockton shot game is it amazes me every single time because I know they're going to win and I'm like this must be where they start their run and then the run still doesn't start it just in that particular game the thing that always amazes me is how late the run started that ended up taking yeah. them to the victory yeah an almost entirely Stockton run by the way um, you know st- he gets all the credit but I'll tell you what. Oh, a Greg Ostertag was hugely. Go back and watch it sometime. He was huge in that on the defensive end. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And what do you mean go back and watch it? If I watch it, I will get stressed. That's the whole point of well, this of this tangent. <laughs> um, no, yeah, I I hear you. Um, so yeah, I mean, there are some. There are definitely um, some good things I think to take from the series. There, there is also. You know, as you were mentioning a minute ago, you know, there are some guys that didn't play well at different parts of the series. And at a level, that's to be expected because, 
right. you know, this is a team of playoff rookies. And um, so I get that. I, I do get that. Um, <clears throat> that said, I wonder how many non-game seven Rodney Hood type performances the Jazz can afford to get against a team like, like Golden State. Um, oh, yeah. Obviously, the backup point guard was uh, a spot of a lot of scrutiny. I mean, like, Howell Neto, um, he finally got healthy and was able to play, and people were really happy to see him back because Shelvin Mack hadn't done great things. And then Howell Neto came in and had the worst net rating on the team so far in the playoffs. So um, backup point guard continues to be a spot where you wince a little bit. Um, You know, Rodney... Joe had some great, Joe Ingles had some great games. He had some really poor games. Derek Favors had some games where he looked amazing and he had some games where it looked like he could barely move. Um, so, you know, definitely I, I think some things that, uh, some things that should make Jazz fans a little bit nervous heading into a team with a, a series with maybe the best team in the multiverse. Right. I'll add one more thing about watching that game late because I had once I once I knew the score, I decided to go ahead and catch up on the Twitter commentary. And uh, I thought this will be very interesting now to see watching a game without the emotion, but knowing that everybody was uh, so upset with uh, the the calls and non calls uh, in the game. Um, It was very interesting to watch it without the emotion. I didn't think it was nearly as bad as what Twitter, the Twitter universe felt like live. Um, but yeah, there were some, there, there were clearly some missed calls in there, but, uh, I, I think I felt, I mean, I felt like, uh, they happened when it was so far out of, it fell out of reach. And, and even though we said that maybe it didn't feel like that to those of you watching live, yeah. but, um, that I just couldn't imagine it. I mean, it would have taken, I guess I mentioned earlier, the colossal collapse by the jazz, the Herculean effort by the Clippers or, quite a bit of manipulation by the referees to ever turn that game around. And again, I'm not a conspiracy theorist generally. And there were some, there were some calls that went the way, but I didn't think watching it without that emotion and that nervousness in my gut for the most part, uh, you know, there were some bad calls, but I thought they were bad calls, not conspiracy theory type things. I actually hate the conspiracy theory. and, And mostly that's because I've spent enough time in close proximity to the NBA game to know that if this were the cons- if this were a conspiracy, the number of people that would be involved in keeping a secret that big, and I just don't trust humans to keep secrets that big because there have been other things that people couldn't wait to tell me that were nowhere near as big. So right. take that for what it's worth. I, I do. There was one. There was one stretch though where I thought, boy, the conspiracy theorists. If this game does go the other way, there was. I think it was. It was from the two thirty one mark in the third quarter to the minute forty mark, where Derek Favors picked up three fouls. He previously only had one, and a couple of them were pretty questionable. That's where, if I were a conspiracy theorist, I'd be. <laughs> would have and and the game had gone the other way. I'd be saying, Gobert's already on the bench with four fouls and you just took the guy who had one and in 50 seconds you called three fouls on him and two of them were questionable actually one of them was questionable one of them was a foul where he hit spades in the head but spades i believe had fouled him before that and maybe even partly caused it so yeah at, um, at any rate i i guess my thing about the calls is this i think um you know in a playoff context there's so much contact that happens on any given play that you could go back and review one call or one no call in isolation 
and you could probably argue it either way. Meaning that today in the league office, the, the officials are looking at that game tape and they're saying, oh yeah, look, you know, Rudy Gobert got, even, even though George Hill on Rudy's sixth, when George Hill clearly came in to give the foul so that Rudy wouldn't have to, yeah, the guys in the league office today are patting themselves on the back because like, oh yeah, Rudy touched him. I, I just, I think the thing that made fans mad in real time was not the textbook definition of that's a foul, that's not a foul. Because again, I think that so much of these, it's more a sliding scale than a, right. than a yes, yeah. no definition. I think it's the fact, I think it's the incongruous nature with which it felt at times the game was called where, you know, a lot of hand, like people focus a lot on DeAndre Jordan under the glass. Watch DeAndre Jordan's hand almost every time he sets oh. a screen. He is a very oh, yeah. handsy screener. He grabs, he pushes, he holds. And, um, and you know, he does yeah, he get and, called for a lot of those. And, and in the past, I mean, the, the one of the stories has always been, you extend that arm, and, it, and they usually use that for an offensive foul. But honestly, it should go either way. If you're extending an arm and gaining an advantage from it, and that happens all the time. But yeah. anyway, the Jazz won. Yay. <laughs> go, go team. No sour grapes and, over here. <laughs> Well, so let's talk about the Warriors because, you know, here we are again within 24 hours of the series with the Warriors. So how are you feeling about this series overall? Well, you know, some of the things where we kind of teed up to talk about a little bit, but uh, I mean, overall, I'm not really truly looking at this as a, as a really good opportunity to advance. I'm looking at it as an opportunity to get some experience and maybe a little bit to show the show the world that it's not just a, a 4-0 rollover, I hope. Not that that's my measure of success. If it ends up being Jazz getting swept, whatever, they still get the experience. Um, I, I hope that I don't ever feel like the, that, that the Jazz are rolling over, even if they are getting run over by the machine that is the Golden State Warriors. Well, let me ask you then. I mean, what is success? I, I posed this question to um, a bunch of our contributors, and that roundtable post will be up soon at Salt City Hoops. But, um, I mean, what has to happen in this series for you to consider it successful or is just being there sort of success in and of itself? Well, I think to a certain extent being there is, in a lot of ways for the whole season is a, a great achievement. I mean, even if they had lost Game 7 against the Clippers, I would have considered the season a success to get to 51 wins and a, well, a hard-fought Game 7 or a hard-fought 7-game series, I mean. Uh, you know, for this team that has not tasted the playoffs, uh, you know, Gordon Hayward had a few minutes in playoffs in, in, in what was it, 2012, and uh, Favors would have been there too. And but uh, for this and Burks, okay. Well, Burks didn't see any action in this one, so yeah. Um, so yeah, it's it's this is a you know this was a step, no matter what happened in round one. Now to get to round two, if they get swept, you know they are facing an, an incredible offensive powerhouse team, and they're not not that they're bad defensively either. Although their biggest defense is their offense, I think. So they're they're going to be. They're going to be overmatched at most points. Does that mean they can't win a game or two or even maybe possibly in in a perfect world push a game seven? No, it doesn't. I think they can, and I hope they will, but that's not going to be my measure of success. If we're wrapping this up next uh, Monday night after game four, 
whatever. As long as we feel like the effort was there, the fight was there. And I, and we don't usually question that with the jazz. Yeah, no, I hear you. But, but I, I guess, I guess for me, four games where they quote unquote play hard, um, to harken back to an old Matt Harpering <laughs> line, <laughs> Matt played hard. Um, I, I guess for me, even though I recognize the implicit success in them being at this stage, I still wouldn't take four games of they played hard as being a success if, if they get just played off the court four times. Um, my measure of success, I think, is just the clip, the sorry, the Warriors. Um, I want the Warriors to feel the jazz a little bit. I want yeah. them to. I want them to end the series, whether it's four games or seven games or whatever. I want them to end the series thinking, you know, not to be defeatist, because it'd be great if they ended the series thinking, "Oh, we're on a fishing boat." But let's pretend for a second that the Warriors advance. I just, I would like, in terms of the the progress that the Jazz are making, I would like for the Warriors to be relieved to have the Jazz out of their hair in four to seven games. Um, particularly because, um, you know, everything that happens right now is part of the Gordon Hayward audition. That's just the reality of where things are at. And if they get beat by 30 four times and then Gordon has to go home and sit on his couch and watch Boston in a competitive second round series with Washington, who by the way, isn't anywhere near as good as golden state. So it's not apples to apples, but I just, I want, I want him to go home at the end of the series and know that the golden state warriors are, are glad to be done with the Utah jazz, whatever that means, whether that's four hard fuck. In fact, I'll, I'll quote Aaron Hefner again. Aaron said, to me a, a week or so ago, he said, you know, if it's four blowouts and then the Jazz win one game by two points, I would rather have a sweep where the Jazz are in every single game. And I agree with Aaron on this. Like, I I want, I want to see the look of panic in Steph Curry and KD's eyes at least a couple of times in the next four to seven games. And I don't really care about the game count so much as I care about just knowing that they've been put on notice. Yeah. Well, and that takes me back to, I, I, first of all, I agree when I talk about if it's a sweep, it's a sweep, whatever. If I, I, I also want to see competitive basketball, even if it is a sweep, if it's four 20 point uh, wins for the Warriors, while the season may overall be a success, you're right. That does leave a really bad taste in the mouth for the players, specifically Gordon Hayward and the fans, and makes us feel like, okay, we're on this, you know, of course everybody's on a second tier on paper to the to the Warriors. <laughs> so but but second, third, fourth tier, who knows? Who who knows how many tiers that we're skipping. But yeah, no, I think the Jazz have a chance to I don't know if you picked up uh or read uh the Golden State writers call I'm on the on the series today, Kawakami. Uh, nice. I mean, again, he's he's picking Warriors in five, saying that the Jazz give the Warriors a lot more trouble than Portland will, or than Portland did, and uh, that that's what I think. And and so that's that's my takeaway is let's at least make him sweat a little. Yeah. And if and whether that's four games or seven games, great. Well, Portland can't guard anybody, and that's why I I think that was a particularly inauspicious. Um, you know, sample to look at and say, you know, in other words, Golden State played a team 
that can't guard their way out of a paper sack, and that was also missing probably, what would you say Yusuf Nurkic is at this point, the third best player on the Blazers? I would say probably so, right? Dame, CJ, and then him. So missing their third best player, couldn't guard all season long, was left really without any big men to play with in that, you know, serviceable big men anyway. I mean, like they were literally playing all Farouk Amino at center in that series. So for people to see that four-game sweep and then conclude on the basis of that, that there was going to be nobody that was going to stop or even slow down the Warriors, um, I don't think is really fair. Now, if you're reaching that conclusion because they're just a really freaking good team and they've been really good for 82 ga- 86 games now, then, you know, I'll respect that. And, um, and by the way, you know, I'm not even necessarily saying that I think the Jazz are the team that will whatever you know, really put a stumbling block in their way on the way to 16 postseason wins. Um, but I don't think the Portland series should have jazz fans shaking in their boots. If if you want to look for evidence that Golden State is a great team, it's there. But that series was, um, you know, for a lot of different reasons, not, I think, the place to look. But you've been looking, Ken, at another series um, for, I don't know if hope is the right word, but you've kind of found a parallel elsewhere in jazz history as it relates to. Yeah. Like I uh, messaged you this morning or this afternoon, your time, probably this just feels to me more and more. And I, and I hope I'm right. Like the 1988 series jazz Lakers, um, which again, you were pretty young at the time. I think you said eight years old. Is that right? Correct. So wait, was I younger than that or older than that? Well, let's see. You were two years out of high school at that point, so I was I was just confused because sometimes there's a little confusion about which of us is older. Oh, there's no, there's no confusion on my end. I think I've I think I've got that one pretty pretty well down. All right, you're older. Okay, okay, all right. I was just checking. So yeah, it was it's it's been a while, but so in that series, because again, you were eight years old. I don't know how recently you've looked back at that. The Jazz were in the 4-5 matchup. They were the 5. They beat the Portland Trail Blazers, um, you know, without home court advantage. Uh, that was back in the five-game series days. Uh, they lost game one and then won three in a row. They won uh, on Portland's home floor, and then two, they held home court. And that was, and, a, good, and that was a good Blazers team. I mean, uh, Terry Porter yeah. was there. Clyde Drexler was there. It was probably before they had Buck Williams, right? Or was Buck there Probably too? Probably before. I, I meant to look because I because you know they, we played him in eighty eight, ninety one, and ninety two. Well, and you so, keep talking. Oh, I can look it up. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. <laughs> no, but it was a it was a good team, and I mean, again, if even if it wasn't a great team, it was they were favored and they had home court advantage. They they were at least slightly better on season record, and they had home court advantage. Oh, and they were well. They were way better on record. They were a fifty three win team. The Jazz were a forty seven okay. win team. Forty seven. And I knew the forty seven. And yeah. and to answer the other question, they didn't have Buck yet, so their their most common starting five was Clyde, Jerome Kersey, Terry Kersey. Porter, Kevin Duckworth, and Caldwell Jones, who I had forgotten existed until this moment. Yeah. So yeah. But anyway, so go on. Okay, so they come off that series and they get matched up with the Lakers. Lakers at this point are I mean these are the Showtime Lakers. If there's a parallel between them and today's Warriors, it's got to be the Showtime Lakers. You got Magic, you've got Kareem, you've got James Worthy, 
um, a handful of other guys, you know, that are, you know, big name. Rambus was there. AC Green, that was early in his career. Yeah. He's obviously important in jazz history. All-star <laughs> game. Anyway, um, so, you, so you've got this team. Nobody gives the jazz a chance, really at all. The jazz, the prior two years, hadn't even gotten out of the first round. They were still a young team, even though this was uh, Stockton's, what, one, two, three, fourth year, Malone's third year. I believe I'm doing the math right. Yeah, that's right. They were a young team who had didn't really have an identity as a team who was going to go deep in the playoffs. Nobody gives them a chance against the defending champions trying to repeat Lakers. They go in, they lose game one, they got laughed out of the place. If I remember right, Golden, uh, the Lakers had a little extra rest going in, although it wasn't a dramatic amount of difference because the Jazz had wrapped up their series in four, and the Lakers obviously went at least three. Um, so it wasn't a huge difference, but they just got killed. And then... Again, not to go too far and spoil this whole story, but Frank Layden comes out, and the way he approaches it in the media is, we don't stand a chance. We're How are we even supposed to fight with these guys? I assume that's not what he said in the locker room to his guys, <laughs> but that's how he faced it with the media. He made it a big joke, and the Jazz came back and won game two of the series and then ended up pushing it all the way to seven games. And to me, it was a turning point in the Jazz franchise even more so had they not then dropped the ball in 89 and 90 and lost again in the first round before they then started their their build toward the final years, yeah. finals years. And by the way, it, there are more connections between that Lakers team and this Golden State Warriors team. Do you know what they are? I do. Oh, bring go it. Ahead and, go ahead and enlighten me. Well, just now that I've brought up their basketball reference page, I think I'm like the smartest guy in the world about this series um, even though it's all from basketball reference. But both of those series had a Thompson. Both of those teams had a Thompson. Actually, right. the 88 Lakers had two Thompsons, but only one that was related to Clay. Yes. they had they, The Lakers had picked up Michael Thompson from the Spurs in 87. And um, most people thought in 87 that as soon as that trade happened, that the Spurs had just gifted the 87 championship to the Lakers, which they had. And he was still around in 88. In fact, he played with the Lakers post Kareem's retirement, probably through 91 or something like that. Um, 92, maybe. He played, played a few more years for them. But yeah, Michael Thompson, Clay's father. Yeah. And, and there's, this is not. Oh, go ahead. Well, and there's another dad of a current NBA player on this team. On the Warriors, you on, mean? On the 88, on the 88 Lakers. Oh, on the eight. Oh, who was on the 88 Lakers? Who else? The the father of Wesley, don't call me Wes Matthews. Oh, okay. Yeah, that I did not realize. So now well, we're I getting into going... really the the rot the minutia. We're talking about like the thirteenth man on the Lakers roster, but um, you know, hey, I'm, I'm having. Fun. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go even more minutia than that. I had already jotted this down. So the Jazz played that series against the Lakers with Dinner Bell Mel Turpin on their roster. Do you know how the Jazz got Dinner Bell Mel Turpin? He was part of that same trade trail from, from, uh, from Magic, right? Uh, no, oh. no, he was not. Dang it! The Jazz traded Kent Benson and Del Curry for Mel Turpin and Daryl Dawkins. Oh, so I'm the liking Jazz this. Were only one year, yeah, one year post Del Curry when they when they faced the Lakers in the second round. And to me, trading Del Curry has always been something that kind of haunted the Jazz because they got Dawkins and he played four games, two games, six games, very few games, and, and then was traded away for 
cash and a second round pick. And then Mel Turpin did last the whole season and moved on to play in Spain. So, yeah. Um, in fact, I learned this. I, two, two facts I did not know about Dell and Steph Curry. Um, first of all, they share the same name, their full name. Both are named Wardell Stephen Curry. How about that? The son with a the second on the end, not a junior, Wardell Stephen Curry the second. And when I looked up his birth date, I learned that Del Curry was still a jazz man when Steph was conceived. So I'm sure we ought to get something for that, right? The jazz should get some kind of special treatment. Yeah. Anything? I mean draft anything? considerations. <laughs> you know, I right. don't know. Some extra T shirts. Um, yeah. If they have some Believe t shirts laying around from 2007. Yeah. The 87 series would have ended by the time said conception took place, but uh, Dell was not traded until October that year. And so uh, his uh, staff's mother was pregnant at the time of that trade uh, to Cleveland, and uh, then staff was born that first season that Dell was in Cleveland. All right. Well, so that was quite the five minutes of family tree and intertwined NBA (laughs) histories. Um, Let's untangle it for a second. And just so, so back to your original metaphor, you, you think that this um, you think that where the jazz are at today is a good parallel for what, where the John and Carl jazz were at in 88. And you think that the, um, that the 88 Lakers were a similar team in terms of dominance and, and this sort of multi-star setup to today's Warriors. So if we take both of those things as true, um, then, I mean, kind of what, what would it mean for the Jazz to do something similar this year as what those 88 Jazz did? I mean, you were... I was involved as a as a fan back then, but I was an eight year old fan. I think I was six years old the first time I made you and Dad teach me how to read the roster so I could memorize the names of the jazz players on the roster. But that's probably not quite yet the level of being a cerebral fan who analyzes things. So I don't really have, I think, the appreciation in my own memory bank of, of how that kind of vaulted the jazz into the national consciousness how it kind of legitimized them and credentialed them going forward. Um, just how big of a deal was it when the 88 Jazz showed up and took the Showtime Lakers to seven? Well, I don't know if it still vaulted them into the into the whole nation's national consciousness but, I, consciousness, but I think it definitely put them on the league's roadmap because here was this team that had gone to the second round twice in 84 and 85, got beaten in 86 by the Mavs and then swept in 87 by the small ball warriors. So they just weren't really probably respected that much at that point. And that sounds a little crazy because we think of the Stockton and Malone era now. And and I think most people respect them or hate them, or maybe that's two sides of the same coin. Um, But that series, I think really put the league on notice that this team is for real. They're coming. The Lakers aren't going to be there forever. And they're going to, you know, the, the Jazz are one of the teams in the West who might be able to supplant them. They ended up doing that. It just took a whole lot longer than we thought. The other thing I was thinking about, too, is, I mean, this wasn't an era where we had the NBA on ESPN or TNT or anything like that. We probably, back in those days, were still getting 16 
nationally televised regular season games a year. Not jazz After games, the, NBA games. No, 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 NBA games. Right. The 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 not until football season ended or at least was wrapping up that in January did we start to get one game a week on I want to say NBC at that time. No, it was CBS. Um, I, it was NAMS, Was it CBS? It? Okay. Yeah, it might have been. Yeah, it was CBS, and then it went to NBC. That's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah, it was CBS. So so we were in a stage where, you know, even a team like the Lakers was only on national TV in the regular season five, six times, seven times maybe, probably a lot because they were the Lakers and, and the Celtics were on a lot and the Sixers were still on a little. And so the big names were, were on, but, you know, then you get to the playoffs, though, and more of those games find their way on a national TV. That was many people's first introduction nationally. Fans, you know, around the country, first introduction to who the Jazz were, you know, Carl Malone and John Stockton. Before that, probably not a lot of people knew who they were unless they people were people who attended games regularly in their own markets. So I think it put the Jazz on the map. It's a little different today. More people are going to know a little bit about these players because we do have you know, national televised games on whatever, four or five, six nights a week. Um, and, and then if you've got league pass, it's, it's whenever you want. But, uh, no, it was, it was, I think it was pretty big to me. It was always a turning point in the jazz, in the jazz, as far as the nationally recognized franchise. The only downside, as I mentioned before, is the very next year, I'm sorry, I said in 87 they got swept by the Warriors. They didn't. That was a five-game series. The very next year, in 89, that's when they got swept by the Warriors. Yeah. And and then in 90, they lost to uh, Phoenix in five games. Then, starting in 91, they started their build toward eventually the finals years. Yep. Yeah, I mean, interesting stuff. And, and I do think... Um... While you're right that I think the modern era means that they're already maybe a little bit more on the national map today than than the than the '88 Jazz were pre second round series. I also think that the whole media mechanism and and social media mechanism and league pass and and gifts and yeah. um, instant availability of of video, like I I do think that this is going to um, for better or worse, and, and I think that there are arguments that it'll be better and arguments that it'll be worse. I think that this is going to, um, I, I think that people are going to be aware of this series, whether that means that the Jazz do well and there's going to be some conversation about, hey, look at the team that is at least making Steph and Kevin Durant and Draymond Green and Clay Thompson sweat a little bit, or... Um, or we're going to be, you know, seeing a whole bunch of not fines anymore. Um, see, as soon as I learn one thing, they just do away with it. Um, You're getting how, old. How old do I sound right now? Yeah. Um, but, you know, yeah, for better or worse, I, I think that um, people are going to be very aware. I mean, I've had people stop me, like um, my chiropractor, who's a lifelong Brooklyn guy, as he was walking me out of his office the other day said, go jazz. I mean, like that's the level of just sort of broad relevance that, that you get now when you perform at a high level, um, in an age where it's just ubiquitous and, and, um, and very visible. Yeah. No, I think the jazz have an opportunity just like they did in 88. I, they, it, 
a, a much larger portion of NBA fandom will be paying attention to their next four to seven games than ever than ever before for this Jazz team. Yeah, because nobody's watching for the Jazz. Not nobody, but few of them are watching for the Jazz. But everybody's watching because you got Kevin Durant, you got Steph Curry, you got the other guys. Everybody's watching the Warriors, and oh wow, look at these guys who are actually competing against them. That's what happened in '88, and that's what was exciting. It kind of validated this the, the this young team that existed in in that year. All right. Well, I want to wrap up, but since we have spent a lot of time talking about the '88 Jazz, and I want to end on a little bit of talk about the 2017 Jazz. Um, <laughs> who, who, what guys do you think? Um, are the keys in in doing what you just said, which is you know making it a competitive series. Let's, um, you know, whether that means somehow shocking the world and advancing, or turning it into a six seven game series, or just or just making it tough on the Warriors, who are going to be kind of the the bellwethers for Utah. I don't know that any of the answers change. Um, <laughs> They're going to have to get big games out of out of Gordon Hayward. Um, I don't feel like, unless they throw Draymond Green at him, that they're going to have as big a defensive stopper for him. Well, no, Iguodala. Iguodala will give him some moments too. But I feel like you know they're going to have to get some big games out of Hayward. They're going to have to get some big games out of a couple of bigs, even though this is a team where you can get away a little more with, with going small. So that's probably going to be Gobert. We'll see what Derek Favors' status is when it gets to be game time tomorrow, because apparently his uh, his Herculean effort in uh, <laughs> the last night has might cost him game one. Everything comes with uh, a cost. Right, and uh, and then I think they're just going to have to get you know beyond beyond a Favors and a Gobert. I think it's okay to have your third, fourth, fifth guys be by committee a little bit and switch it around. I, um, I, I think I don't think it's one guy who's got to come every single night. Uh, you know, Hood'll have Hood'll struggle, and then maybe he'll have a game where he plays well. As long as you don't get all of them all playing poorly on the same night, I think they have a chance to at least you know push the Warriors a little bit. Yeah, I think I think the reason everybody talks about how the playoffs are are a stars game, and I think that that's true. But I think it's true by process of elimination. I think what I mean by that is. Um, when you're facing this the same team for seven straight games or four to seven straight games and you're doing it without back-to-back so you're prepared and you're dialed in on just this one team and these 12 to 15 individual scouting reports it's a lot easier to solve for players who are specialists or players who do one or two things well um and that's why the players that i think find a way to get things done in the playoffs are are players who have a few different ways that they can impact the game, you know? Um, and that's the reason why, uh, why I think you see, not that he's a specialist, but like, you know, Rodney hood is starting to feel like a guy who there are two versions of Rodney hood, the Rodney hood, who shot is going down and the Rodney hood who, Hey, have any of you guys seen Rodney hood? Cause we can't find him. So, um, so I think that's, I think that's going to be interesting. And actually I think that's going to be the question really beyond the Jazz's front five or six guys. And by that, I mean, really, Hayward, um, Gobert, Hill, the Joes, and Favors if he's, if, if he's physically held. Like, those are the six guys I think you can really rely on night in and night out to 
in a bunch of different scenarios and situations and applications find ways to to have an impact on the game um you know rodney will do it if he can make shots um dante exum might do it if there's an opportunity for him to come in and defend at this point he's a specialist he's a one skill guy he can come in and, and he can bother guys at the point of attack um howell neto can sometimes do it in one or two contexts so i think that's gonna i think it's just gonna be those five or six it's gonna be the jazz's best players and the warriors best players and um and i think that's why most people are looking at the warriors as having a big advantage because their best five or six players are really dang good and um right and obviously the jazz have an all-star and a likely all nba center but um but i think that's really the battleground for this series is the jazz's best half dozen versus the warriors best half dozen yeah i i agree and hopefully those guys who you know on the nights they're not shooting well or not doing whatever their thing is are doing something else you know and that's one of the knocks i think on hood sometimes if he's not shooting he's not doing anything else to help you um but you gotta you know they're gonna have to bring their a game honestly to even stay in a game let alone win a game uh they're gonna they're going to have to bring their a game to just, to just show. And, you know, if they do that a handful of games, they're going to have a chance to win, a, win a couple and, you know, maybe we get really lucky and they have a chance to win more than that. But I don't know. It, it, it's still going to be fun to watch as long as we're not watching four thirty point blowouts. Yep. All right. Well, one way or another, it'll be fun and um, it may be historical, but if nothing else, it'll be a chance to, remember some quirky jazz history and remember <laughs> who's who's whose father and who was conceived when and and all those other <laughs> things that that ken and i have regaled you with here on this edition of the salt city hoops podcast so thanks for joining in um we obviously have a lot more basketball at least at least four more games of basketball so we'll be around to talk about that we'll be around to talk about the implications afterward right here at saltcityhoops.com 